0: All right, you guys, Scott Horton here, and on the line I got Eric Schuler and he's going to interview me for the Q&A show. I can't stand doing these podcasts where I just kind of talk to you guys and record it and put it out there. I need somebody to talk to. So I got Eric Schuler. He helps out around the Institute. How you doing, Eric? Good. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing real good, man. Uh, appreciate you doing this. So uh, what all are we talking about tonight?
1: Well, I was thinking to, to start off, we'd... Do a, a couple of housekeeping items. You're working on the new book, and I understand there's some, some crowdsourcing going on. Do you want to tell tell people a little bit about that and what, what the project is?
0: Yeah, we got this cool thing, man, where um, Tom Woods was always telling me to make this uh, a private Facebook group. And I always thought, yeah, no, nah, I don't want to do that, man. I hate Facebook. I quit that like four years ago, five years ago almost. Um, but uh, so then I did it on Reddit instead. Oh, you did it. Um, created this great Reddit group, uh, r slash Scott Horton show. And, uh, so any donor who is already donating five bucks, uh, at least five bucks a month or begins donating five bucks a month that by way of PayPal or, uh, my Patreon and that's scotthorton.org slash donate for all that stuff. Um, anybody doing that, you get tickets to the, uh, you know, keys to the Reddit room. And then, so we decided that. I had this great guy, Jonathan Koop, did a great job uh, last time going back and listening through my old Afghanistan interviews for cool stuff to put in the book, and which was very useful to me and saved me a lot of time. It wasn't too bad of a chore for him since he was listening to the show anyway. So and, you know, listening to old stuff. So I was like, "Hey, well, why don't you focus on listening to old Afghanistan stuff for me? Okay, cool. So But then the problem is, the new book that I'm writing, and I know it's stupid. I don't know what I'm thinking. It's it's already too late to stop now. But yeah, I'm writing a book about Afghanistan. Oh, wait. Well, the Iranian Revolution, the Iran-Iraq War, Iraq War One, Iraq War One and a Half, and a half, the Al-Qaeda guys, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria, Mali. <clears throat> so, you know, because I'm from Texas and I know everything about all this stuff. Uh, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So uh, I'm working on that now. And what's happened is uh, Andrew, aka Car Campit, and um, Eric, aka Bird. I almost forgot his AKA. Everyone has their internet name. Carr Campit and Bird in the Reddit room are overseeing the project, running the project. And people are volunteering and signing up to go and listen to old interviews on whichever subjects. And taking the notes. And then, you know, uh, those two guys are organizing all this stuff. So right now, I've been writing a lot. And I've been taking a lot of notes from doing a lot of research and myself. And then now, I'm cracking down and reading a bunch of books for, like, the next few weeks. Anyway, I mean, I can't overkill the whole thing to death. But um, I do have some reading to catch up on uh, before I put this out. So I'm going to spend the next few weeks really crash coursing on reading a bunch of books, and then probably doing some follow-up interviews with those authors, too. And um, I already read like five books this weekend, so um, getting a good start going. And um, and then, uh, so I'm taking all those notes, and then at some point I'll go and integrate all that, and integrate all that with uh, the notes that my good friends in the Reddit room have taken, too. So that way we'll have lots of footnotes about you know, interview with author and that kind of thing at the bottom. Make me look good. And, uh, yeah. And so it should be good. It'll be fool's errand only for the entire damn terror war. Is basically, uh, the point here. And there's, I mean, really almost, I wish I could say it, but it's just almost 4,900 interviews now. It's 4,870, some 76, 78, something like that. Um, I checked the other day. So, that's a lot of interviews to go digging through, uh, almost 5,000 interviews and almost all of them on foreign policy. So, um, you know, and I don't want to completely overkill it. I mean, I think people know that unfortunately I'm going to end up ignoring a lot of the notes that they take and not using a lot of that stuff. I don't want to use it just to have footnotes that say I interviewed the guy. But a lot of times, I mean, almost every time I interviews are people who wrote stuff and I might get more and better out of them in the interview than in the article that they wrote that we're talking about. But it depends, right? Um, but, you know, a lot of that stuff was good. We're reporting from the Hastings and the Enderses and the, the uh, Patrick Coburns and all those great guys out there. So anyway, a lot to do still. And oh, and here's the other thing. Now we got Trump at least talking about getting out of Syria and Afghanistan. I guess we'll talk about that in a minute, but it looks like, hey, maybe I fished my wish and I better hurry. I want this book to really have a part in this debate right now. You know, when they say that there's a complete consensus that no, we have to stay everywhere forever, forever. I want people, I mean, I guess not in D.C. and New York. They're not going to care. Powerful people aren't going to care, but. At least regular people will be able to say that no, man. You know what? In fact, there's this new book out about how no, it's all BS, and we could stop all of it, and et cetera, like that. And uh, so that means I really want to get it out at least by the beginning of the summer, you know, end of the spring, beginning of the summer. But I know that's, I know from the last time around how difficult that's going to be. I mean, it's really not going to be possible. Actually, now that I think about it, <laughs> but I'm going to do everything I can to really rush it. And and you know what? I was thinking even. I might really rush it and just put out early versions of it and continue to update it and make it better, but let people criticize it for being half baked, but you know get it go ahead and get it out there depending on the time frame because if they're if they really are pulling troops out and they really are fighting about it, and Trump starts talking about, yeah, I don't know why we're in Somalia either, then we I gotta do it, you know, as fast as I can.
1: yeah, that's so. that's a lot of optimism talking.
0: Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, it sure is. I mean, the thing is, is I know that he's a cranky old bastard who never did understand why we were in Somalia in the first place. You don't have to be Ron Paul and have principle to just think, why are we in Somalia? Did I just say Afghanistan? I meant to say Somalia. Why are we in or in Afghanistan, for that matter? Um, yeah. So, anyway, I don't know. But at least they're fighting about it, because as, as you saw and as we we're going to discuss further... Everybody completely freaked out over pulling out of Syria and uh, Afghanistan, or at least the announcements that he made. Um, So there's a huge fight to be had there. Um, But also that means that my new strategy is I'm going to uh, stack up and schedule all my interviews for Friday and just try to do eight or 10 interviews every Friday, because I can do that. It's not that hard, as long as I have enough Dr. Pepper's. But the problem is, uh, but then that way I have more time in a row to write and really focus on getting this book out of the way as fast as I can. That's great. So. And, and so if
1: people want to want to take part in kind of the, the crowdsourcing oh, yeah. of your bibliography, how would how would they go about that?
0: Yeah. So you just uh, join up the Reddit group or if you're already a member of the Reddit group, go and log in and look at the dang thing and you'll see the uh, top two pinned posts are about this. And uh, you know, explain what all's going on and how to participate in it. And uh and yeah, it's basically just, you know, listen, 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 blah, blah, blah. Horton's talking, and then he finally asks a question, and then the guy says something important, and then you write down at three thirty, he says, you know, mm-hmm. Hey look, Israelis or whatever, you know, I don't know.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So you can keep up the uh mass, you know, like the half of your book being a bibliography. I feel like that's part of your brand in books. If you do more of them, people are going to come to expect that. Well, you you know, know, I wanted this to really be
0: breezy and not have that. But then I recognized that, you know, virtually every uh, compliment that Fool's Aaron got included that it's so well-resourced that no one can say anything about it. So I kind of thought, you know what? I really better do that again. And that's pretty easy for me because it's easy for me to find, to remember where I read stuff in the first place. So, you know what I mean? It's not hard for me to go back and find it and remember what's in there.
1: Yeah. And I think it it does set you apart from, because I feel like a lot of foreign policy books are going to just be, you know, Hannity making assertions or whoever, you know, fill in the blank with your pundit.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Making claims.
1: And then it's like, even if they're right, it's like, okay, well. How would you get there? And how do you separate yourself from, you know, just silly posts that uh, that you see elsewhere? So that's it's yeah. really interesting. Well, with that, I guess, um, let's just jump into the serious stuff. So there's 2,000 troops there, and Trump has announced that the uh, last couple weeks that he's going to pull them out, kind of came out of the blue. Um, seemed to take everybody by surprise, and I, I wonder if... That's, you know, sort of so that he couldn't get uh, couldn't have people front run him and try to, you know, start dismantling the case before he just put it out there. Because I think there's kind of some precedent with that. And, you know, I remember reading uh, Swanson's book, The War State, and he talked about how Kennedy had to do that a few times. If he was going to make a big speech, he didn't want it getting leaked because then somebody would sabotage it. So he'd just, you know, go out cold and no one would know what to to expect. Do you think that's kind of Trump's strategy on this?
0: Yeah, except that he's right in his defense when he says that there was plenty of time that, you know, he announced this a year ago. Remember last, I think, January or February of 2018, the beginning of this year. uh, He announced, yeah, we're leaving Syria as soon as we're done with ISIS, we're pulling out of there. And Rex Tillerson said, yeah, right, belay that order, never mind what he says. What I say is, and what we all say, is we're there for Iran and for Hezbollah and for Russia, and for ISIS, and for Assad, and for, I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. And then he got fired. And I don't think he actually got fired over that. I think he got fired over the, you know, intervening to stop the war between Saudi and Qatar, thank God. So, he didn't get fired for doing a horrible thing. He got fired for doing the right thing on that one, Um, which makes sense. Um, Well, he
1: also called him a moron. I I thought it was just maybe just...
0: Yeah, wow, I mean, that probably had, had a lot it. to do with, yeah, <laughs> yeah how he lost his job. But now remember, when he said that, that was when Erdogan said to Putin, see, um, they say they're staying for Iran. We hear they're embedding and building a mini state with the Syrian Kurds. And so watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill some Kurds. And Putin said, OK, go ahead and pulled back his... Uh, Russian air control, airspace dominance over that region of northern Syria, and the Turks invaded, and with al-Qaeda shock troops, of course, al-Nusra guys uh, leading the attack and sacked the town of Afrin, and I think the Kurds mostly withdrew, but at least, you know, some were killed and war crimes were committed against um, the some of the female fighters, their bodies were, were uh, you know, desecrated and stuff, the Kurdish fighters by the Al-Qaeda guys. And um, and this was a real, you know, this really showed how seriously the Turks take the idea of the Americans staying embedded with the Syrian Kurds there. But now for anyone who listened to my show, they weren't surprised by the idea. And we talked about this years ago, years ago at the, you know, in 2011, 2012, when this whole thing is still was just getting started, that at some point, America's going to stab the Kurds in the back and uh, realign with Turkey. I mean, at that point, we were already aligned with Turkey, Um, but that we're always going to choose Turkey over um, the Kurds. And then when the Islamic State blew up out of control and took over Western Iraq, and they had to start the war all over again against the Islamic State that America and Turkey had just essentially worked to create... Then America backed, you know, embedded there with the Syrian Kurds in order to fight ISIS. And the whole time it was clear that they're going to be backstabbed and they're going to be left high and dry. And in fact, in um, Mark Perry's article for the American Conservative, it was originally titled General Scaparati's Revenge. Well, General Scaparrotti is the supreme allied commander for NATO in Europe. And his argument against James Mattis, which apparently got really heated back six months ago, was, hey, when are we going to tilt back toward the Turks here? They're our NATO allies since World War II, and the Kurds are just the Kurds. Some YPG, you know, leftist militia guys. We don't need them. And Erdogan's getting antsy. So what the hell? So they portray this as just Trump versus the Pentagon, but that's not true. It's Trump and some generals versus other generals. And of course, to Mattis, the problem is, say it now, Iran, Iran, Iran. The top three threats in the region, Iran, Iran, Iran. Now, you know, you might be you know, wondering when did they knock our towers down or something like that, but that's not James Mattis' concern. James Mattis is the guy who invaded Iraq and killed Saddam Hussein for George W. Bush, overthrew his government for the Ayatollah, Khamenei, and Sistani, and for Sadr, for Dawah, and for Skiri. And so now he's trying to make up for it. James Mattis is the redirection, right? And so their idea is, is so why do they back ISIS in the first place? To hurt Assad. Why? To hurt Iran. That was what, I always say this, Barack Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg, that's right, Jeffrey Goldberg, this would be a great way to bring Iran down a peg by getting a regime change against Assad. And so that was why America and... Israel and Turkey and Saudi and Qatar backed the Al-Qaeda suicide bomber head chopper murderer terrorists in Syria for five years was uh, well up well I, I'm I'm summing it up first of all for the first three years to led to the rise of the Islamic State then they kept back in Al-Qaeda in the West as they fought the Islamic State in the East from 2014 through 18 here to be clear so-
1: Let's um, – to pull on one of those threads there, why why does the U.S. – well, some members of the U.S., I guess. Why why do they have a preference for Turkey over the Kurds in your view? Is it just – is it Incirlik, the air base there, or is it – I mean they're in NATO and that's a lot of inertia or what do you – Yeah, you I mean I think
0: – yeah, I think that's probably the biggest part of it, right? Um, you know, I remember Phil Giraldi joking on the show one time that like, hey, I don't know – and I think actually we were talking about the Iraqi Tur- or the Iraqi Kurds at this point. Or no, maybe this was the Syrian Kurds that we were talking about. And Giraldi was joking that, hey, I don't know, man, the Kurds have oil. So we might just turn around and backstab the Turks and choose the Kurds over them. But uh, no, it didn't pan out that way. (coughs) But, you know, I think they look at it like they don't want to lose Turkey to Russia is basically the deal. Right. So they have to keep Turkey as a tight ally or else because this is all some weird risk zero sum game where it matters either way whether the turks buy their weapons from the russians or the americans okay
1: do do the syrian kurds do they have a lot of oil resources or is it just the um there's oil
0: there it's not all very well developed and i'm not sure how developed it was before the war but it's certainly not very well developed now but there is some oil in the east of the country although you know actually that's a good question about whether it's south of syrian kurdistan there, it's in the east, but I don't I don't actually know whether it's up in the northeast.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. So, what about Mattis? So, another thing you mentioned, Mattis's motivation is all about Iran, which we know he has. That's been a long kind of stuck in his craw for a while. It, do you, do you think that's you know to him is that geopolitical strategy, grand chessboard type stuff, or is that just he blames Iran for killing some of his troops in Iraq? Yeah, from the IED uh, thing. And and so it's just it's going to be permanent from now on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. That's what Mark Perry said, was that these Marines are still not over Beirut in 1983. And then they blame Iran for 500 out of the 4,500 deaths of American soldiers and Marines in Iraq War Two when they did fight Shiite militias, some of whom were backed by Iran. But blaming Iran for that is, you know, uh well, it's begging a lot of questions to set up an argument in that way. As I try to explain, and I think people are catching on to this, and it matters, that the government that America created for the Iraqis in Iraq War Two was a joint project with Iran all along. Just because they weren't talking to each other because they hated each other so much didn't mean that they weren't working together to put the United Iraqi alliance of the Supreme Islamic Council, the Dawah Party, and Muqtada al Sadr in power in Baghdad, and for that matter to help Sadr's army and Skiri's army, the Bada Brigade, um, kick all the Sunnis out of Baghdad in a massive ethnic or sectarian cleansing campaign that ended up, you know, in the civil war that overall killed approximately a million people. And then at the end of the war, in the last two years of the war, in 2000 or you know the the worst part of the of the fighting in 2007 and 8 it became then a race for now that we put this government in power who's going to have more influence over it america or iran and the the americans were led by george w bush and so iran won that contest big time and the american bet was that we have the money and the weapons and so they're going to need us more but I mean, the reality was, America had helped them kick all the Sunnis out of Baghdad, which was the Iranian policy to do that sectarian cleansing campaign, and so they didn't need our help anymore. They would have needed our help if they had really tried to dominate all of Western Iraq in a, in a very harsh way, but they didn't. They basically just cut them loose, and they got their Shia stand, and they were happy with that, the the ones that the Iranians had helped to put in power. So... At the time that America, sorry I'm saying too much about it, but at the time that America was fighting Shiite militias there, and Iran was helping those Shiite militias, they were just making the point, basically, that now that you have helped to install this government in power here, to create this thing, and build it up, and build up the army, now you can go, because, you know, at the end of the day, the people that you helped put in power don't want you here. And they have this tight alliance with the government next door, so they don't need you here. And so that was a big part of that. But all of the Iranian help for the Shiite militias during that time was totally overblown. You know, obviously, and you mentioned the IEDs, that's improvised explosive device for you young kids who don't remember Iraq War II. Um, but... Um, You know, among the Shiites, they call them the EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, which had uh, basically shaped charges with copper cores to cut through light armor. And these were really, you know, the Iraqis were manufacturing these with design help that they got from Hezbollah. So that's not even directly from the Iranians at all. And the accusation at the time was that all of these bombs were coming from Iran, but that was just a lie. And it was proven 50 times over or something that those bombs were made in Iraq by Iraqis. And yes, Shia, but not Iranians. They And they were, you know, at no point did they say, aha, see, we caught a truck full coming across the border or anything like that. Um, at one point, they laid them all out and had all these weapons, and they were going to do a big press conference to show how Iranian all these weapons were. And the reporters started milling around and looking at them and going, well, come on, man. I mean, even if that one says made in Iran, I mean, that doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's a big market out there. And they canceled the press conference and, like, pulled the curtain and drew the stuff back and didn't do it. That was their big shot and they hyped it up too. What a big deal it was gonna be. They were gonna show you. They were gonna finally prove all their accusations. So and
1: then they discovered Iraq has yeah. copper too.
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh, an Arab can, you know, run a machine shop in a garage just like a Persian can. Who would've thunk it, you know? Um And then um Yeah, and so um there was this huge propaganda campaign basically blaming Iran for Everything that had gone wrong in the war, but all that had happened in the war was that George Bush had done Iran's bidding the whole time, and they didn't make him do it. You know, from from the invasion to staying, to the sides to the major factions that he sided with, um, and every bit of the El Salvador option and using the Shiite death squads to hunt down the leaders of the Sunni insurgency, and you know, everything that he did was exactly what the Ayatollah probably would have not even asked him to go that far in doing, you know? And then Obama did the same thing, right? Obama supported the Sunni-based insurgency in Syria, which the Sunni most Syrian Sunnis sided with the government. And most of the army uh, enlisted and officers were Sunnis, so don't get me wrong, but it was the al-Qaeda-led Sunni insurgency, such as it was in Syria, Obama did that, again, to spite Iran by hurting Assad, to try to make up for what Bush had done in Baghdad, essentially. But then again, what happened? It blew up so badly in the form of Baghdadi's Islamic State that then Obama had to launch Iraq War 3, which was I'm sorry for everybody for telling the same story every day. Every time anyone hears my voice, this is all I'm I'm doing is saying. (laughs) And then what happened? America took the side of Iran's pet Shiite militias again save al-al-Haq, that's just the Bada Brigade, you know? And they did Iraq War Three was just a repeat of Iraq War II. America on the side of the Shiite supermajority again, to rouse the Islamic State out of the predominantly Sunni cities there in the West. And help to, you know, establish and entrench Iranian power in Iraq even further than before. And then, now back to the beginning, why do we have to stay in Syria, they say? Because Iran's there. Why is Iran there? To help defend the Syrian state against the CIA's Al Qaeda terrorists. And so, once these, and the Islamic State is no longer a state at all, it's nothing but the remnants of a militia. At this point, the Americans are actually standing between the Syrian state and what's left of ISIS. And if America would just go and let Assad reestablish his territorial monopoly on the country, And with the help of his Iranian and Hezbollah and Iraqi militia friends, America's friends, when they're on the Iraqi side of the line, finish them off, then they'll be finished off, and that'd be that. Everyone's saying, oh, no, ISIS isn't 100% defeated there. Lindsey Graham, that's the big article today. Lindsey Graham saying, oh, but ISIS isn't 100% defeated, so we can't leave too soon. But then he says, who else is the beneficiary? Assad and Iran, and Hezbollah, and Russia, ISIS's enemies, right? The people who America is essentially protecting. And I say essentially because I don't mean to say that Trump has American soldiers deliberately protecting ISIS on the ground, but I do mean that the Syrian army ain't allowed east of the Euphrates River. And so they can't get there to fight because that's the American, don't cross this line because this is where we are zone or whatever, you know? So but then if America would just get yeah. out of the way, the war against ISIS would be over. And then, if you don't like it that Iran benefited from the war, well, then that's your fault for backing Al Qaeda against them in the first place. These things happen. I don't want to hear it.
1: So let's go to the to the protection argument because you you do hear I do hear that you know you hear that claim pretty frequently um, that the U.S. is protect and, and you know it depends on the context how careful and nuanced somebody's going to be when they say that. But, but the idea there is essentially that, I mean, the U.S. has 2,000 troops officially. Who knows if that's the real number or not? And they probably have more special forces than that, too, because those are never counted, right? Is that probably a safe assumption?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. you know what? I don't know if special operations forces count in the count there. Probably not. I agree with you. Yeah. That, yeah, they're probably yeah. left out of the, the count. The sneakers, not boots. Yeah, um, and you know what? There was just an article in Politico. I tried to get the guy on the show, but he never answered me, but... Um, It was about this giant base that they were building out there. Um, And uh, I forgot how many troops he said were there. Which, by the way, there's this article in the Daily Beast. It's um, Kimberly Dozier. I don't respect her at all. Spencer Ackerman, I, you know, I I respect his journalism in some ways, Um, I guess. But, uh, you know, this seemed to add up to me that uh, what the way they put it was that Bolton had pushed it too far that Bolton and this guy Jeffries you might remember we talked about this on some of the shows that this guy um, James Jeffries was saying oh no we're never leaving we're there for Iran we're there for Hezbollah we're there for Israel's interests we're there no matter what nobody can ever say a thing." and then Bolton earlier this month uh, the beginning of December had also made a statement that as long as Iranian forces are outside of Iran's borders, which was pretty vague, right? Like, does that mean as long as they have advisors in Iraq, too? You know? Um, Boats on the says, sea.
1: Huh? Boats on the sea.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, as long as Iran has forces outside Iranian borders then we are staying in Syria. And apparently that was when Trump said no. You know what? Actually, I already argued with you guys and already, you know, conceded that, okay, you got another six months, you got another six months. Well, your last six months is up now. And, you know, stuck to that. Which just goes to show to me, really, I think the most important point here, too, is just... You know, and and it remains to be seen whether Donald Trump follows through. By the way, I don't want to give him too much credit. It's not over yet, but um, it just goes to show what a coward Barack Obama is. I never understood this. You know, it's not like I think he's a good guy, but I think he's smart enough to know better than a lot of these things, and and yet he always just said yes to them anyway. Like even on Syria, he wants to take credit for not literally putting Ayman al-Zawahiri on the throne in Damascus when that was what all of Washington, D.C. wanted him to do. And he said, you know what, man, I don't want to go that far. Let him take the East, but I'm scared of giving him the West to the country, what's going to happen. You know, something like that. But he wants a bunch of credit for being afraid to fully implement his horrible treason when all he had to do was tell them, hell no. No. You know what? I know that you guys are all upset about Iran, but guess who I'm upset about? Bin Laden and his buddies, still. They're the problem. Bin Ladenite militias, you know, uh, the remnants of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Our only priority in the Middle East is keeping them down. And waging a regime change against Assad doesn't fit with that, so sorry. You know? I mean, who's the superpower and who's the satellite here? Or am I talking about Israel or Saudi or what? Either way, anyway. Well, I think
1: I think you started talking just about the generals that he wouldn't. You know, everybody, the blob. Yeah, the blob. Yeah, the think think tanks.
0: And and I guess I started off too thinking about Afghanistan, where they really rolled him and he escalated the war by, you know, seventy thousand troops. We had 30,000. He had another 70,000 troops over 2009, didn't start 2010. And then with, you know, they badgered NATO into come up with another 40,000, although they didn't do much. Um, but, you know, he tripled that war. And he knew better all along. And he made sure to tell people, hey, for the record, I know better all along. And then he did it anyway. They're making me do it. Like, that made it look like it wasn't his fault. When he's the president, and as Trump is finding out, he's the president. If he says, all of y'all go to hell, this is what my orders are, then that stands. And, you know, it it came down, I show this in the book from other sources, not that it's my original journalism, but I linked to the, you know, I sourced to the people who reported this story that, you know, um, Obama had said he was afraid that Robert Gates, the Secretary of Defense... George Bush's Republican Secretary of Defense that he kept. He was afraid that he would resign, and that David Petraeus and General McChrystal would resign as well. Psh, are you kidding me? I would have laughed them right out the damn door, you know? And how how could anybody actually be the president and then exercise so little authority when it comes to such important things, When well, and it would have been good politics too. It would have been good politics, not bad politics. To have this fight and to win this fight back then and to be seen as a leader who is willing to stand up in the way that people are giving Trump credit right now. Everybody's trying to stop him. He's doing it anyway. Apparently, supposedly, we hope. um, If he backs down, it'll be the greatest shame. I'll tell you that.
1: Yeah. It is interesting about Obama, too, just because, you know, he had that line and it was always used in like a domestic political context of some you know something invariably bad that he wanted to do on the home front um well almost invariably um the, you know elections have consequences and it's like why couldn't you just okay like you ran as the i'm not the you know the complete pawn of empire like everybody else who tried to run here you know accepting goose and gravel and whatever but like um you know he ran as that guy, so how could you not like? I'm going to be afraid that Bush's Secretary of Defense is going to resign if I do something anti-war. Like, how is that? It, yeah, it, you know, it doesn't. And look
0: at that. who's his biggest critic in the in the Senate was John McCain, who he soundly defeated. So yeah. why not just continue to make a foil out of John McCain? Why not give a speech and say, look, I defeated John McCain by ten points, you know, in a landslide a year ago, because the American people decided they didn't want him to make this call. They preferred that I do, and because they could have anticipated that he'd be screaming his head off saying we got to triple the war, but I'm not going to do that. And sorry, Senator McCain, but you'll never be president, dude. So fuck off, you know. That's what I would have said. I should censor that part.
1: <laughs> so okay, so let's let's get back to um, that started at the 2000 trip thing. I want to I want to drill in on that a little bit. So when when people say that. You know, the U.S. is functionally protecting ISIS in there. It's basically just that uh, the U.S. only has 2,000 troops. So even if they are actively campaigning against the, you know, the small residual ISIS presence there, just because of the the minimal manpower, it's not going to be as aggressive of a campaign as what the, the Syrian military would be able to do now that they've consolidated power elsewhere. Is that basically the idea?
0: Yeah. And you know what? I haven't been following it nearly close enough it, very recently. But I think that, you know, they were basically said to be kind of just out in the desert, licking their wounds and and trying to survive in small groups and that kind of thing. But then I, I think I also read that they retook uh, some small town, at least for a little while there in East Syria. So there's still, I don't know, hundreds or low thousands there. And I'm not exactly certain they call it the SDF now because it's not just the YPG Kurdish forces although my understanding is they do all the work and the the Arabs are there basically mostly for window dressing working in their same militia but um, I I don't know the status of I mean it seems like they called that off special operations forces and uh, Kurdish YPG out there hunting down and killing the last Al-Qaeda forces. It seems like they call that off at some point in the recent past, but I don't know when.
1: Do you mean Al-Qaeda there or do you mean ISIS?
0: I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I meant ISIS there. Because all the Al-Qaeda guys are in the Idlib province in the far northwest of the country. That's a separate problem. Right. Okay. And so
1: right now you think your understanding is that they were sort of just kind of holding pat and not, um, and not really engaging, but not, yeah, just kind of preserving the status quo as it was.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I assume they're still hunting with drones. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a separate, you know, they call it the new Syrian army, this separate, you know, so-called moderate group that was down in Southeast Syria, operating out of Jordan, some CIA patsy dudes. And then they were supposed to be fighting ISIS, but they weren't. And then. They fled to Idlib just the other day. Um, they took off and went to join up with the Al-Qaeda guys in the Northwest. Interesting. So I think, yeah, I think so, they don't have enough troops to fight them with right now. They don't, and they don't have enough auxiliaries. And now looks like the Syrian Kurds have their own problem. Oh, so let's talk about this real quick. Is that everybody's saying that Trump is going to sell out, is selling out the Kurds and is leaving them to all be butchered by the Turks. Well, I mean, first of all, do we have no leverage over the Turks, our NATO ally? You know, They act like, again, they're the empire and America's the satellite. and you know we desperately need them. Wherever would we be if they bought their anti-aircraft missiles from Russia instead of us? that would bankrupt our whole economy or you know, our entire strategy of global dominance would unravel or, you know, I don't know. It's, it just seems all very hyperbolic the way that they approach all this as far as you know what's at stake it is, but it is um, an
1: amazing argument that they're that the, well you know i think they, there's different threads of why pulling out of Syria is such a horrible idea and it seems like they're just you know they try each one on until you know it runs out of right. cache and then they move on but like yeah. the, the turkey But it one is, is the a real concern one.
0: right i mean Erdogan does want to fight the YPG he's worried sure. about the YPG but there's but a simple amazing- solution which is you just let the Syrian army take that territory back over again. And that's the top headline on antiwar dot com right now is that they're making a deal. The Syrian Kurds and the Turk and the the Assad government are making a deal to bring the Syrian Arab Army in. So America absolutely should use its influence with Russia and Turkey and whatever influence they have in Damascus to say, yeah, here's our peaceful solution, you know. The YPGs done a great job uh, fighting ISIS, but they don't need to do that anymore. You know, uh, the Syrian Arab Army and their Hezbollah and Iranian and Russian allies will finish taking care of ISIS. But the Syrian Arab Army will, you know, occupy the border and a space there to reassure the Turks that they have nothing to fear from the Syrian Kurds. And that the Syrian Kurds will then, you know, disarm as a military force. And rejoin the Syrian state. And in this whole civil war, the Syrian Kurds have had autonomy and you know somewhat independence. But they never declared war on Assad. They never backed Assad. You know, all the stories about DOD-backed fighters fighting CIA-backed fighters. You know, CIA-backed terrorists. Al-Qaeda terrorists backed by the CIA uh, versus these Kurds fought by the DOD. So... They never had that problem with Assad, so there's every reason to think that this is the solution, and everybody ought to, you know, America ought to lean on everybody as hard as they can. And Trump's in the position that he should make sure his government leans on the rest of these governments as hard as they can to say that's the solution. Let's see the the American, everyone else in D.C. They want to throw a conniption. You hear him saying, "Oh, you see who benefits from this." Assad and Iran and Russia and ISIS—they act like ISIS is on the same team with these other guys. One of these things is not the same, you know. But the way they the way they uh, chanted out like that, you know. But these groups have every interest in resolving the Islamic State problem for us, and and if America, um, you know, I mean, even right now, if they if the Turks do invade. The idea, I guess, is that they'll they'll use Al Nusra guys to do it, like they did in Afrin a year ago, right? Where they're not going to send in the Turkish army; they're going to send in a bunch of terrorists because that's right. America and Turkey have been on the side of the terrorists all this time, or I mean, not all this time. Trump actually called off support for the terrorists, and you know, the yeah. Turks. I mean, that was in the summer of 2017. A year and a half ago, Trump called off support for these guys. Um, But Erdogan still keeps them, you know, in, in the Idlib province, they're basically under Turkish protection there. And he used them as shock troops a year ago. So they seem to be under Turkish control to a great degree. So.
1: So if, you know, under the deal that you're talking about of the Syrian army kind of retaking the territory that's currently under the Kurds, um, before, so, so Turkey's concerned primarily, it's not that, you know, some white, I mean, I guess they'd probably like to wipe them out if they could, just because they view them all as terrorists. But if they didn't actually hold territory, they're just concerned about having a border state that's run by Kurds. But short of that, they, the theory is that they would be willing to accept it. Is that kind of the idea?
0: Well, I would hope so. I mean, what do they have to fight about if the YPG is not helping the PKK, In Turkey, wage a campaign against the Turkish state, then, you know, hey, be cool, man. You know, uh, and I think you why pick a fight if you don't have to, and it doesn't Russia agree with that? I mean, Russia put out a statement saying that they support this. They think it's great that the that the Syrian Kurds are talking with Assad. So it seems like you know, for their part, they have a lot of influence with Turkey as well.
1: And did the Syrian Kurds have? They didn't have like the Iraq level autonomy that the Kurds there have. Did did they have like semi autonomy, or were they really just kind of another province of Syria before the war?
0: Before the war, they were. You know, I'm not exactly sure about their relationship with Assad, but the Syrian Arab Army was there, and they were part of the Syrian state before the war. And then, you know, Assad just had bigger fish to fry in the west of the country. So they you know, he withdrew his troops to fight against, you know, the American backed jihadists and and let them go. But they never had a fight with him the whole time. So yeah. should be should be uh plenty of opportunity for them to come back together again. I mean, come on. They weren't gonna have Rojava, the free anarcho syndicalist, you know, utopian little project there. In the land adjacent to Turkey, where you have this strongman, you know, right-wing leader, Erdogan, who, you know, not just has a problem with the PKK, but likes to pick a fight with the PKK when he can right? He uh, launched a big attack against them in, what, 2014 or 2015 Against, against the PKK, mostly apparently just to marginalize their political party before the upcoming parliamentary elections to solidify support for his coalition and you know because their votes would have gone toward the other guys and so he launched a giant attack against them and you know seemingly unnecessarily from what i saw they didn't really predict it with a big i mean um provoke it with a big bombing campaign against a terrorist bombing campaign or anything like that before that i think he took advantage of some incident to launch a major crackdown there so uh, the Syrian Kurds, they had to know that they were having their fun for a little while there. Not that fun. Um, you know, all militarized and fighting the whole time. But They got to have their independence, but that was never going to last. And, you know, I hate to be such a doomsayer for the poor Kurds. This has been an issue for a long time under the Ottomans and, you know, since World War One and everything. Whatever's going to become of the Kurds, because you have you know, all these different political factions where you have, you know, essentially one big ethnic region that's (laughs) pentasected, you know, it's Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and then also even including parts of Azerbaijan and Armenia up there. So how many is that? And so you have all of these sovereign states who will not give an inch. None of them are going to actually allow an independent Kurdistan—that would necessarily mean redrawing their maps at their expense. All of these national governments that already exist—Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey—would go to war first, of course. So the Kurds the are just only, stuck.
1: And the only country that actually backs like independent Kurdistan movements is just Israel because they want to. They
0: yeah, just because it's destabilizing. So yeah,
1: yeah. But no major power is ever going to – it doesn't seem like any major power is going to do that. Although it is interesting. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that the U.S. doesn't do it with respect to the like Iranian part of Kurdistan.
0: You know, Because it seems like that would just well, be Well, America natural. has supported PJAC there. And they're okay. basically the Iranian branch of the PKK. And is the YPG so just the Bush Syrian did. branch
1: of the PKK? Are they all – I mean, I know I, I've heard Coburn say this before on your show or Patrick Coburn say this before on your show that – You know, they kind of like, they worship the same, worship's probably the wrong word, but they look up to the same leader. So they really are kind of the same.
0: Well, I don't know a whole lot about PJAC, but yes, the YPG and the PKK, I think, are all led by Akalan is their leader. And he's the guy who, curiously and interestingly, I think, said, hey guys, we're no longer Marxists, now we're Bookchinists. So everybody read Murray Bookchin, and he was... You know, this anarcho-syndicalist writer from Brooklyn, I think. And, you know, the Rothbard circle of, of people in, in New York certainly knew him back then. And um, so he's kind of a post-Marxist, um, you know, more freedom-oriented anarcho-leftist uh, type. And that's who they were trying to emulate. Now, in Iraq, it's always been the Talibani and Barzani clans. That rule Iraq, and they're not related to the PKK. And I think Talibani just died recently, um, and Barzani is still the one alive. Um, <clears throat> but they, um, there are PKK hiding in the Iraqi mountains that the Turks bomb from time to time, but they don't have the political power there. But they are the PKK. I believe are the biggest political force among the Turkish Kurds and among the Syrian Kurds by far. Now, in Turkey, they have a civilian political party, but it's still the offshoot of their militant group. Sin Fein to their IRA kind of thing.
1: Okay. So, so another thing that's interesting about this, so we've kind of gone through one of the reasons, um, walked through one of the reasons that the pullout is being objected to, which is we have to stop our NATO ally from invading, so we need a tripwire, which is... Interesting on in itself that that's how we think, like, ah, oh, otherwise our ally will invade against our wishes. It seems like a funny thing to call them an ally still then. Right. But um, so that's one of them. And then so you mentioned how everybody's saying this is somehow simultaneously going to benefit both sides of the con- of the remaining conflict, which is Russia and Syria and, you know, Iranian proxies on one side and then ISIS on the other side.
0: Mm-hmm. And what they really mean is that first part. Right. And it's all about Israel, and they're not even being shy about it at all. I mean, the New York Times editorial says, hey, this is bad for Israel. And the Washington Post editorial says, hey, this is bad for Israel. And in Haaretz, they got, I don't know if you read this thing by Chemi Shalev. He's an interesting national security beat reporter for Haaretz. And, you know, had done interesting stuff about the nuclear deal and stuff back in Obama years. And, man, he wrote this just raving thing. Just cursing Netanyahu because Netanyahu was taking Trump's side and saying, our good friend Trump has announced he's pulling out of Syria. Isn't that great, everybody? You know, through clenched teeth. Um, And... And Chemi Shalev is saying, oh, yeah, see, you got the symbolic move of the embassy to Jerusalem. But when it really comes to Israeli security, Donald Trump sells us out and Netanyahu, he's no leader. He he doesn't stop him from selling us out. So they're taking it really hard. And in fact, in the few weeks, um, I have the footnotes here. I've been saving them. In the fu- in the few weeks before Trump announced this, there were editorials saying, why are we staying in Syria? Because that's what Israel wants, and this was in Haaretz, this was in the Israeli papers, saying Netanyahu's fingerprints are all over this policy. That was a headline. Why are we staying there? And and if you listen to them, they say again because of Iran. Again, that's why America backed the Sunni jihadist terrorists in the first place was against the to try to hurt the Shiite axis, the Iranian Shiite alliance in the region. Uh, that Israel hates. And so now that Iran has benefited, of course, from that policy, and there are more Iranians literally on the ground there and more Iranian power and influence, figuratively speaking, in Syria than ever before, well, now you can't leave now because look at the hole that we've dug. you got to keep digging. And, you know, that's basically the answer, right? Why should Americans care at all whether... You know, Hezbollah has gained battlefield experience from the fight Obama picked with them. I mean, is that a good enough excuse to say that now we have to fight them since Obama picked a fight with them and lost it? That now we have to start it over again? I mean, the whole thing is crazy. If there's Donald Trump has picked a good time to call it off, I think, and any reasonable person, like we were talking about before with Donald Trump, not even reasonable. You could be any person and just say, you know what? This has all been going on for too long. And apparently our best expert generals can't figure out how to tie up all the loose ends at a reasonable price in a reasonable time frame here. We're going to fight a war on terrorism forever. And half the time we're going to be fighting literally for the bin Ladenites. And half the time for their Iranian enemies. And then start all over again. And we're going to keep doing this from now on, fighting on both sides of this stupid war. I mean, it's crazy. (laughs) The whole thing. So to call it off now is actually perfect. That, you know what? As soon as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State are defeated, why would Iran want, I mean, why would uh, Syria want Iran to stay after that? Thanks a lot for the help, guys. You can go home now. Right? Assad isn't trying to turn his country into some completely, you know, Iranian controlled puppet protectorate. And nor do they have the influence to do so to him. You know, to, to, I don't think they would even try that. I'm sure he like owes them a beer or whatever. They're all friends now more than before. Uh, Hezbollah, again, has a lot more, uh, you know, many more battlefield experienced. Mid-level commanders than they had But I mean that's just tough And if that's the worst consequence of the war That the Syrian state still stands As compared to Having Abu Muhammad Al jalani or Ayman al Zawahiri Sitting on the throne In Damascus Killing everyone for Being a Druze or a Christian Then meh I think that should be good enough for everyone and isn't it something where, you know, Brett Stevens had a thing um, in the New York Times that uh, Philip Weiss highlighted where he's just talking about going on and on and on about how bad this decision is for Israel. And then he says in there that, you know, it's a horrible like anti-Semitic trope to say that he or anyone else puts the interests of a foreign state first like Israel. You know, that's not true. It's just that that's exactly what he's doing, and that's exactly what he's saying. He can't come up with reasons why this should matter to Americans, other than, whoa, we're hurting our ally. But we're hurting our ally because our previous government's conspiracy with that ally to support the Al-Qaeda terrorist suicide bomber head choppers didn't pan out? Huh? So what?
1: You know, yeah, it's uh, it's an, a pretty amazing uh, the Syria thing, it, more than perhaps any other conflict, it's one of the most interesting ones to try to have a coherent discussion about because there's just so many you know, it's so hard to argue for intervention because it's like, well, which part of the intervention do you want because there's so many different parts that it could be doing. Um, so I, I was and you know, I should clarify
0: question, too because people will say, hey, listen, all they did was back the moderates. But the fact is, the moderates were just the gun runners and the cash receivers for the terrorists, virtually the whole time. And the guys that the Americans would train up, this militia, that militia, this militia, that militia, for years. And those guys would all just go and join al-Qaeda and ISIS. The dollars were fungible, the guns were fungible, and the fighters were fungible. And no, they are not all Islamist, you know, far right-wing crazies, as I understand it, and as I always you know explain it bin Ladenism is you know dressed up in religiosity the same way as george w bushism was um in a sense and i'm sure he's a pious true believer and all that and a lot of his people are but it's a political movement and they are political radicals and there are all kinds of hardcore right-wing fundamentalist religious people in every sect you know all kinds of all different sects of Muslims, but all different sects of Christians and Hindus and whoever, too, who are quietists. Who have hardcore religious beliefs, but who do not make part of that political resistance uh, in the present that they live in. Um, and, and that uh, goes the
1: other direction, too, right? Yeah. That you have people that wouldn't have radical... Right, exactly
0: right. Is You have yeah. people who... Are people who are not necessarily religious kooks, but who absolutely are political radicals and are willing to fight like hell, and so, and that goes for some of the, you know, 9/11 hijackers, um, and you know, what, and I show this in my book, and I and I have footnotes to all the different studies in my book by the different intelligence agencies in Europe, the you know the Israelis and the Americans, the Defense Science Board uh, appointed by Donald Rumsfeld to study this. This is political radicalism that we're dealing with. Now, you know, the Salafism and the takfiri and all of this, it somewhat plays into it. But it's not the end all. But, you know, the jihadists were war criminals. So if if CIA has the military train up a guy who seems reasonable in Jordan, and then he goes off to fight for al-Nusra, which is led by al-Jalani, zawahiri's guy then these are the war criminals that attack the united states you know right um it's i don't care about their religious sames. it's they're somebody is joining up quite deliberately joining up a group that literally attacked us not just figuratively <laughs> like they're always saying about iran is the greatest sponsor of terrorism in the world no details yeah. are available just repeat that slogan a few times you know um Al Qaeda actually did attack us over and over again. Um it was the worst part of the Sunni insurgency that killed four thousand out of forty five hundred guys that died in Iraq, uh in Iraq War two fighting them. So um now, Yeah Now when
1: you say that I guess the the other thing now you would agree with the idea that like there was some organic kind of like democratic movement in Syria that's part of the Arab Spring and it just got very quickly co-opted, right? That's that's sort of how it that's yeah. my understanding of how it works. And so it's not that everybody who was protesting Assad didn't have legitimate reasons and was, you know, trying to be a violent terrorist. Right. Type. It's a
0: fascist dictatorship. Yeah. There's and it lots was. of reasons to oppose it. You know what yeah. though? So here's the thing about it. David Enders is a reporter and you know, I lost touch with him. I don't know what happened to him. I saw he was writing for Vice a few years ago. But anyway, I used to talk with David Enders all the time. And uh, he covered Iraq War II and did great job on Iraq War II. He covered Libya, did great job on Libya. Um, and he covered the revolution in Syria in the early years. I was talking with him, 2011, 12, 13, I guess. I'm not exactly sure. Right in there. And so one of the things that was very true about Iraq War II and was an important point about Iraq War II was that George Bush and his government claimed that all Iraqi resistance, which was predominantly the Sunni-based insurgency in Anbar uh, and in the west of the country and in Baghdad, um, that these were terrorists, right? They weren't, there, there were no Iraqi local patriot militiamen who were grabbing their rifles to go defend from foreign invasion there wasn't even a sectarian battle where the previously privileged were now losing status and had something to fight about nope it was terrorists versus humanity they came from beyond the moon nobody knows where they are they're not iraqis they're just terrorists and and in fact there were a lot of terrorists that came from around the region from saudi and from syria and whoever and who fought with Zarqawi and who quite deliberately used and that's the leader of al-qaeda in iraq uh you know he didn't he didn't actually join al-qaeda until the end of 2004 you know a year and a half into the war but he did um yeah. but and it's they did use terrorist attacks and and massacred um uh, shiite civilians in suicide bombings and attacked their mosques and waged a massive you know terrorist sectarian war against the Shiites. So. That much was true, but they were the smallest part of the Sunni insurgency. And good reporters like David Enders would always make that distinction and say the government blames every bombing on Zarqawi, but that's not what's going on here. You know, you have these major factions of the former Iraqi army, the Ba'athist um, military officer corps, the tribal leaders from these major cities in the west of the country. And all of these factions have so much at stake. And then for the Americans, it was this convenient talking point that, oh, terrorists, 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 terrorists. when they were really the smallest part of the insurgency. And they were a big problem, but they were not the majority of it. Whereas then in Syria, David enters on my show saying, look, al-Qaeda is the largest part of the Sunni insurgency here. They are dominant here. And there are other groups, but, you know... Essentially, the moderates don't fight. Moderates sit on their asses at a hotel in Qatar and tell Hillary Clinton how smart she is and can they have some money now, while it's the extremists who are doing the fighting here. And this is not a foreign invasion occupation by the USA or something like that. This is an attack against the status quo government there. And so it doesn't have that same kind of... um, of force behind it among the local population to just rise up in war, rise up in protest. Sure. But then, you know, go to war against the army. No. And of course I think it should be said, I guess, you know, just to show, I ain't, you know, trying to hide nothing or whatever. I'm not on Assad's side here. I'm only on the side of the truth. So his government probably overreacted in a lot of ways to the original attacks, which were started by the jihadists. Um, but they overattacked in a way that probably played into their enemies' hands there, um, internationally and domestically, in terms of uh, support for these guys, uh, and made matters worse as far as that goes. Um, but you know what it really was was Al Qaeda in Iraq, which had called, which has started calling itself the Islamic State of Iraq in 2006, and had been almost completely marginalized out of existence. By the Sunni insurgency that they had allied themselves with, after they helped the, the Sunni insurgency lose the civil war to the Shia, they were probably more harm than good on the Sunni side of that war, and the so the Sunni tribal chiefs and the Baathist uh, military guys turned on them and eliminated them almost completely. But
1: and that was in like 2009 or so.
0: Yeah, in um, well, no, I mean beginning really in 2006. And then David Petraeus showed up at the front of the parade in 2007 and called it The Awakening and gave them some money to keep it up and said, stop attacking us and we'll stop attacking you we'll give you guns and money, but you promised to eliminate the Al-Qaeda guys, which they were already doing. You know, because the, the leadership of Al-Qaeda in Iraq were a bunch of Egyptians and Saudis and so forth. So they were coming and trying to push the local Sunni population of Iraq around, but they weren't used to living like Saudis. And, um it was a very advanced society there. You had women with no hat, you know, in blue jeans, teaching college in Baghdad for real is how it was there. Um, not every place, but yeah, it was a very advanced Westernized type Arab society, um, before America broke it. And so the leadership of Al Qaeda, well, imagine they're about the pushiest bastards you ever met. And so the local people just got sick and tired of them and started shooting and killing them. And, uh, So then Obama came like the devil out of the, like their guardian angel, and just came and saved them. And this whole operation that he had the CIA coordinate with all of the regional allies, the Sunni kings there, and the Israelis and the Turks to do this, um, to support these guys in this horrific war. You know, it's funny, man, because time goes by so fast, and the older you get, the faster it goes, and so it all kind of gets truncated together, where you had a few years of war before that led to the rise of ISIS, and then we had to fight ISIS, all the same story I keep telling. But if you notice on TV when they talk about this, they never tell the story. They don't have a coherent narrative, because their narrative always was Assad is the bad guy and the terrorists are the good guys, and then they never really had a coherent story about... How come if the terrorists are the good guys, ISIS are the bad guys? And, well, that was just because of that beheading video or something, right? But they don't have a narrative about whose side who's on, you know? And so, like we are saying before, I think a lot of these news people, they don't even realize they're lying when they say, repeating the talking point, Russia, Iran, Assad, and ISIS, they all benefit, you know, as though ISIS is on their side in the fight is they don't even know the difference. They don't even know the narrative about it. So, why are we there? To fight ISIS. Okay. But then nobody says, well, why is ISIS there? Well, because the CIA project got a little out of hand, you see, and uh, it was okay when they were creating a Salafist principality in the East, as the DIA warned in 2012, but when it blew back into Iraq, yeah, that was going too far. In Iraq, America's still on the side of the Shiites. Nobody knows why, I guess just because they can't admit that they wish they hadn't done that. And so they're still there. Yeah. It's uh, it's,
1: it's understandable why you would want to ignore that story because it's,
0: it's well, complicated then, you and it takes more than
1: 30 seconds to tell it.
0: Yeah, and you know to them time is still moving on and so maybe it's not over yet. Maybe they can still hope to buy that power and influence and exploit Iraqi resentment against Iranian domination and whatever and try to wedge their way back in there somehow. So, that's a never-ending contest to still try to compete with Iran for influence when that ship really I think has sailed. And in fact, you know, when Trump came and gave his speech about, yeah, we might just stay in Iraq so we can bomb Syria from there, Muqtad al-Sadr came out and said, "Get out." And and demanded that all his political representatives insist that Iraq War 3 is over now. And and for that matter, Iraq War three and a half is over now too. Beat it. And so we'll see how it goes. That worked when they did that to Bush and Obama. They had no choice but to leave. And I think Trump hopefully will say, you know what? I'll tell you what, Moktada, as long as you keep ISIS down, then what do I care? You know, why should he care?
1: Yeah. So so a couple follow ups on, on on this serious stuff and then maybe we'll move on to, to the Afghanistan piece. So from the Empire's, you know, the blob's perspective, if you will, Brett Stevens and whoever. Um, so I just can't wrap my head around this part. It's, so they have 2,000 troops there, but everybody agrees that's not, you know, because their end game, when, when they say they think it's bad for Israel, is because Israel would like Syria to be overthrown. But 2,000 troops, they're not even theoretically working on that. They're not, you know, they're obviously not trying to do that right now. So it's the idea of why they would be so hellbent on having them stay that, well, if you have 2,000 there, then maybe it's easier to to escalate and you could get back to the, like, let's go overthrow Assad plan? or Well,
0: no, I think – no, the troops aren't meant to be used against Assad directly, but the way that they phrase it is that the Iranians are building a land bridge, which is otherwise known as a road, and um, that they'll be able to travel nonstop – through Iraq, never mind who got rid of Saddam Hussein for them, and, and they'll be able to go through Shiite-dominated Iraq, and into, still, again, Shiite-dominated, a Shiite, Alawite, Baathist, allied with Iran, dominated Syria, to Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, and could give missiles to, to Nasrallah. And the thing is, so- they already have airplanes... And Iran has been arming Hezbollah since the early 80s when it was created by local Shiites in reaction to Israel's invasion and occupation of that country. So uh, what the hell difference does it make if there's a land bridge or not? And isn't it funny the the way they could just get people to repeat that and say land bridge? I mean, You'll hear that all the time. Well, they're building a land bridge. Well... Who told you that you have to say it like that? Where does that come from? And you know what? I was reading Barton Gelman's book about Dick Cheney today, and he says, Saddam Hussein was pulled out of a hole. And I was like, sweet. Barton Gelman didn't call it a spider hole. He just called it a hole. Congratulations, Barton Gelman, for not calling it a spider hole. You must not have got the memo. That you have to call it a spider hole or apparently they'll kill you or something. Same as you have to call the land bridge through Syria a land bridge or else. I mean, I'm not sure or else what or else they won't drink with you at the cocktail party. You won't get the fat weapons contract. I don't know or else what.
1: So do you think that's their that's so that's the real argument for why they're pissed about having two thousand troops, right? It just seems I mean it's I that's what they said. Talk- yeah.
0: okay. That, that right. somehow this can be used to limit Iran, but you're right if your complaint is that they're not being very specific about what they mean by that, you know?
1: Well it's just so I mean, I, I, I realize a lot of these arguments are stupid, but that's like that's dumber than normal, isn't it?
0: Well, look, man, everything they have done has been a massive failure and backfiring catastrophe. And they can't ever admit it. And so they can't ever call it off. But at this point, I mean, they don't even have an argument of which way to double down. I mean, I think that's your frustration, right? Is that they're out of excuses. Their only excuse is that there are Iranians right there on the other side of the river who aren't messing with them. And who are only there because America backed the bad guys there in the first place, place, the bad guys who are now almost all dead, thanks to those same Iranians? And, you know, like I was saying, now's the perfect time to call this off if you're an American. But if you're an Israel-first neocon traitor, then no, Iran has now a greater presence in Syria. And that's bad for Israel. And so... We really don't know what should be done, but something should be done. We can't leave it like this.
1: Then Iran could have cheaper transportation, theoretically, if they built a road across the massive desert to deliver rockets to Hezbollah so that it could prevent Israel from invading.
0: And you know what? America and Saudi can still back the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq. (laughs) You know, Saudi's been backing them since 2003, so... Um, No, I'm being sarcastic yeah. there I mean, that's true, but it's horrible
1: Well, and then, okay, so just the last thing here When you say, because I, I know we say this a lot um, And it's kind of counterintuitive, so just to, to pin it down You know, when, when we say that Iran benefited from the U.S.-Syrian policy Essentially, what we mean by that is that we gave them a pretext Well, we made Assad dependent on Iran and Hezbollah to, to try to repel Right Repel the Al-Qaeda types And so that's So it's not necessarily that like Oh war's good for people that fight in it It's just that it's helpful to Iran Because it caused their relationship to strengthen And gave them a pretext To, to be there
0: more Right and they have you know I think low thousands of troops there on the ground Kuds Force and Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, Guys And then like I say Hezbollah's been fighting them. You know Donald Trump at one point met with the Lebanese president. And he goes, congratulations on, uh, congratulations on your recent defeat of the terrorist groups, ISIS and Hezbollah. But it was Hezbollah that defeated ISIS. Hezbollah, that's part of the elected government of Lebanon.
1: Maybe for the Hezbollah party, meant like they played chess together or something.
0: <laughs> I and mean, I mean it, it just table. goes to show have... that and that's the level of understanding our president has. He is just as misled as your right-wing Uncle Bob on your email list there about what the hell's going on here and who is who. Yeah. And, yeah, that's a real problem. And you know what, too? I was thinking this as I was uh, working on my book today. As I'm sitting here reading Barton Gelman's book about the Cheney years and stuff, picking up some torture footnotes and so forth. And I'm thinking, I really am fighting the last war here. You know, like the terror war ain't over. I mean, my the book is a call. It's a short history of the terror war that's been fought and why we ought to call it off now, all of it. So that's good and everything. But I'm thinking, man, I'm spending a lot of time on the past. Even the recent past here is still the past, and there's still plenty of problems coming this way, too. So I don't know. I, I, I'm feeling like I really need to hurry and move on, you know?
1: Yeah. What do you think about the, you know, the other complaint I've seen is
0: ugh, Trump's
1: not listening to his generals. And you mentioned that really some generals would be in favor of this, some generals wouldn't be. But when they really mean it, they mean Mattis. And Trump didn't even consult Mattis before he decided what he was gonna do. What do you? What do you? It's so funny that yeah. So the commander in chief he needs to definitely. I don't, I don't know. What? How do you? How do you parse that? I guess.
0: Well. I mean, it comes down a lot <coughs> Pardon me, to the character of the president. I think with Bush and Trump, you have the whole thing of they're completely ridiculous dummies. And then with Obama, you have he's weak and he's a Democrat and he's a liberal and he's soft. That same kind of accusation against Bill Clinton, even, you know, draft, Dodger, pothead, um, you know, kind of thing. So then the idea is that You know, contrary to that, you know, on the other hand, who's more respectable than a general? Generals, man, they wake up at like four in the morning and then they comb their hair real nice and then they wear real like sharp seams on their clothes and they boss people around all day and they really sound like they know what they're doing and stuff like that. And they look at all those shiny ribbons and and they command so much respect I mean, because, you know, part of having a military forces, they must command that kind of respect from their inferiors in the service, right? Because their enlisted men could kill them all, right? So, and it's an incredibly, you know, the whole, the whole game is lethality to its ultimate degree. So that lethality must be kept under extremely tight discipline, And then so, you know, exalting the leadership is a big part of that thing, right? Is that, oh, my God, a general just walked in here. Click your eels extra hard and stuff. But that's not how it's all supposed to work on us. We're the civilian population. There are public servants. That's it. In fact, you know, I always liked the way... Well, I'm not sure I always liked it. It's interesting, at least. Depends on how you feel about different aspects of it. You know, the way David Hackworth used to always phrase it, and he was the most decorated officer in the Vietnam War, but he was always an advocate for the enlisted man. And his whole, the way he phrased it was that the enlisted men were not the government at all. The enlisted men were the American people. The officers were the government. The officers were bureaucrats. The officers were cops, you know, were the state where the enlisted men were the American people who sign up to do their duty to protect the country as part of their living in or being a citizen of a republic kind of a thing. And, you know, a huge kind of distinction there. Um, and, And in his point of view, of course, being the government meant they were the bad guys. They weren't to be trusted. They would sell out the enlisted men. Um, on a moment's notice. And that was why Hackworth's whole thing, Soldiers for the Truth, and that whole thing, you know, in the 1990s and then the early 2000s. I think he died in like 04 or something, unfortunately. But his whole thing was essentially like a class war. I mean, he was a right winger, so I don't mean to make him sound too commie, but it was basically a class war of the enlisted um, where he was their champion to protect them. Trying to protect them from the officers who would mercilessly lie to them and use them and exploit them and throw them away with their Gulf War illnesses and God knows what. And um, so that's certainly my attitude about you know, military officers as well. And if you look at all the great leaders of our generation, they're a bunch of completely ridiculous boobs and incompetence and criminals. They're just absolutely horrible. I mean, just go down the list of the terror war generals here, um, which I memorized the names of all the Afghan generals. But in Iraq, where, and, and starting in Afghanistan, we had Tommy Franks, and then... Um, Uh, Casey and Sanchez and Petraeus and, uh, you know, then carrying on to McChrystal um, and, and Odierno in Iraq. I mean, these guys are absolute failures. And they got a million people killed and they got absolutely nothing for it whatsoever, as Donald Trump absolutely correctly says it. And then Petraeus and McChrystal took their public relations win... Essentially, again, exploiting the Sunni Arab uh, Iraqis turning on the Al Qaeda guys as their own victory, and taking credit for that, and parlayed that into escalating the war in Afghanistan, so they could lose that too. And then these guys are adulated as you know the greatest leaders of our time. They give touring speeches for tens of thousands of dollars about the qualities of leadership. And all this kind of thing. Gives speeches to the Boy Scouts of America and whatever. And they're complete. I mean, I think of Stanley McChrystal. I just picture some bum under a bridge drinking a bottle of wine out of a bag. And this guy, they got him up there like, you know, him and Petraeus both. Because it's just too impolite to point out that they lost both of those wars. And, of course, Petraeus was at CIA when they did Libya and started Syria. You know, that was his project. Running guns, that was what got uh, the ambassador killed at Benghazi, was he was embedded right in the heart of a hornet's nest, sending a bunch of Libyan veterans of Iraq War II, jihadists from Iraq War II, off to fight in Syria and take Qaddafi's guns with them. Yeah, that was what
1: they were doing there. It is funny when you think about it as, yeah, not even, I mean, it's not like the second place team because if you only have two sides fighting, you, you know, you're also last, you're second, but you're last too. That yep. that's what's going around giving speeches about. This is how, this is what success looks like guys. Uh, it's, it is very, you know, you think about it like you put it in a sports context, like have the a parade for like the team that got last place and had a fully defeated season. You're like, ah, oh, good job guys. It,
0: right, just you like conservatives are here. always making fun of the kids that get trophies just for showing up and everything. And yeah. they're the biggest these generals are the biggest, you know, participation trophy cases. Uh, sorry to misuse the word cases there uh, that you could yeah. find, you know
1: ah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. and 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 of course, I think one point too about the enlistment, even when they're not, um, you know, there's no draft anymore. But there is something to it that, you know, people that are in there at that level, it doesn't necessarily mean they've decided that, like, the military is going to be their career. Because, you know, they're probably just, you know, a lot of them, I'm sure, are just going, they're going to get school paid and they're going to, you know, have, you know, return to civilian life and have a normal, you know, civilian job and, and whatnot. But if you're at an officer level, especially if you're at a general, you've made this your entire life's work. And, of course, generals are more important when there's chaos. So there's a very, you know, there's a significant kind of self-interest point that I think people, you know, get missed by the prestige. But it's like, no, if you're if you're a general, you're more important in war. So on some level, you're going to be averse to peacetime because then, you know, nobody cares about you in peacetime. You're just that guy who wears a suit that's different than the other people.
0: And I got to tell you, man, I heard I heard from a lot of regular folks in the last week or so that, yeah, yeah. I guess Trump pulling out of Syria is going to cause a lot of real problems. And I got into one argument like this where I said something to the effect of, what are you talking about, dude? Well, yeah, no, I saw on TV the generals are saying that, you know, can't go now. And I'm like, man, are you kidding me? The generals said so. (laughs) They don't want to have to get jobs. I mean... Have you not been living in the same century as me? You think in any case, in any one of these seven wars, that the answer is that we can't leave yet? You're telling me that someone can make you think that? (laughs) Just by saying so? or a general says that he doesn't want to have to get a real job. So, yeah, I also am concerned that would have He's not actually good at anything, except lying and killing people, you know? What if he has to go on the dole? Like he's not already on the dole. Have you ever seen that documentary? I don't know if it's a documentary. It's like on the Discovery Channel or something, where they talked about all of the golf courses around the world that the Generals and the Admirals have. Hundreds of them, all over the world, in all of the finest locations. They're truly a class of Pretorias. Like That's just like one small slice of it, how much money these guys make, and then how much money they make on all their boards of directors when they retire, quote-unquote retire, and go and cash in from the arms industry that they've been paying off the whole time. It's like investing in a Social Security account, only Well, it's also a Ponzi scheme, but yeah, better for them.
1: Well, and they'd have a pension, too, so really, they don't need to do any of that, because you get your full pension. Oh yeah, pretty early if you were in the military. But well, should we uh, should we pivot over to Afghanistan? Yeah, let's talk about Afghanistan. Then? So, oh, so Go my ahead. understanding is that uh, you know, so he's announced that he's so this one I feel like is a little less certain than the Syria pullout. I mean, the Syria pullout's not certain either, but the Afghanistan one is more on more shaky ground, as it were. So his plan is to pull out half of the troops, and so he, I think the numbers I've seen is he'd get, get it down to 7,000. But of course that's only a little bit lower than what he started at because he started at 10, he escalated four and now it'd be drawing down half of that. So it's, I think people are making it out to be a little bit more significant than maybe, I mean, obviously I'm happy if it happens and I hope it does, but I guess to to start off, um, do you think it's going to happen? I mean, what, what's, what's crystal ball saying? The best, best guess you have.
0: Well, I mean, they're talking about a drawdown by summer of half of them, so I don't know. But, I mean, I'll I'll tell you, first off, unlike Syria, they cannot uh, spin Afghanistan as any kind of success. You know, what's going to happen is the, uh, the Taliban are going to declare, which they already have, really, but it's going to be accepted that... They are the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, and they're going to have their own nation in at least half the country. And then I think it's safe to predict the worst, that the civil war will continue and that they'll sack the capital city and will continue waging the war until they can try to consolidate power over the rest of the country. And I say that because I don't think that the other side, the weaker side that America's been supporting this whole time, will negotiate with them. I don't think they have much room to negotiate. I don't think they're going to say, okay, Taliban, you've won on the battlefield this whole time. Let's bring you into the parliament and give you a good 40% of the representatives here. And, uh, and then we'll have a democratic system now, like it works so great. That's not going to happen. And so you're going to have a major contest between armed militias, and it's going to be like the 1990s, probably a goddamn catastrophe. And uh, and I think everybody on the power side of this knows that, and that's the real problem that they're facing, is they know that if we leave in 2030, it's going to be the same thing. American power, they could escalate. It would probably take another few thousand troops. Um, but they could escalate force and uh, and try to hold the Taliban back. I mean, as it is right now, the Taliban don't rule the provincial capitals. They rule much of the country, but they don't take the provincial capitals because the Americans can still bring enough air power down on them to make them regret it and drive back out. So what happens is they'll like take a city like Ghazni just to prove a point and then retreat because it makes no sense for them to really hold it, you know? So the Americans can keep it like that, which is, it's not really a stalemate. I mean, the, it's still, the initiative is with them by far. Um, but you know, that could probably pretty much hold for years. Maybe take another few thousand troops to keep it a stalemate and they could pretty much keep it like that. And the Americans can, without too much force, can pretty much hold the line, I think. Um, They have enough of an Afghan army that in the worst case type emergencies, the Americans can come in and back them up. That's how it's been anyway. But uh, all that just to say, though, that I think everyone understands that when the Americans are gone, then that game is over. That the government that they've created there and the army that they've created there cannot stand on its own. There's no money to do it. I mean, even if it all was really working great, which it's absolutely not, um, it cost. You know, the the government of the country. Well, I forget all my statistics now. I have to go back and check. <laughs> I was going to say the cost of the government is virtually the same as GDP. Uh, it's pretty close. Um, you oh. know, it, it just the the. Uh, the economy of Afghanistan absolutely cannot sustain that government and that uh, and that army. And so I think, you know, the best thing for Trump to do, and it's not too late for him to do this, if only because he's Donald Trump, so what the hell, is he needs to say that, look, this is Bush and Obama's fault, okay? The Taliban didn't really attack us. And... The broader Pashtun population of Afghanistan, these tribal, you know, kind of backwoods hillbillies here, they're not our enemies. They didn't really do anything to us. And Bush and Obama were wrong to try to pacify them, to wage this pacification campaign. That's stupid. Bush is dumb and Obama's weak and cowardly and pathetic and I hate him. And so this is all their fault. And it's not my fault. And in fact, when I came in, I gave the generals, Madison and McMaster, another year to give it a try, to have their escalation, to hold the line, to make an improvement. And we massively increased airstrikes, and we reduced the rules of engagement to escalate the war against the Taliban to see what we could do. We sent the Marines back down to Hellman, and it didn't work. And Madison McMaster had their chance, and when I called them on it, um, you know, Or when I called Mattis uh, on it and said, look, you had your chance, it didn't work, he quit, rather than take responsibility for his failure. So, this is all Bush and Obama and Mattis and McMaster's fault, not mine, so saith Donald Trump, so say we all, and then what? And then who's going to really object to that, other than the national security establishment? And if Donald Trump would say to the American people, for real, hey, look at me, I'm ending wars, no wonder everybody in power hates me. It's not because I'm rude. It's not because I'm mean to the Mexican kids and whatever. It's because I'm ending the wars. If he would frame it like that, he might survive politically. Yeah. And and you know what? Here's the other thing. He's got so many wars to end that he could end a war every few months and drag it out to 2020 election. Man, he could be like you know making peace strategy. with the Ayatollah by the election in 2020.
1: Just any. What if, yeah, wouldn't it be, that'd be an interesting about face. I don't want to get too hopeful. But, you know, the normal strategy, you have a personal scandal or something that goes badly. You start a war somewhere. Seems like it could work just as well because it dominates the media landscape just as effectively if you're trying to pull out. They're just criticizing you instead of singing your praises. So I guess that's a little different.
0: You know what? We're kind of running out of places (laughs) to start new ones, though. And Iran is too big. I mean, ultimately, why they attack Iraq? Because they couldn't attack Iran. Right, so they settled because, as, as Wolfowitz said, Iraq is doable, uh, yeah. So, you know, I guess they could attack, I don't know. So, China. I, I, yeah, yeah, like let's hope not.
1: Um, okay, so kind of getting back to the power dynamics within um Afghanistan, so, so the Taliban. You know, they're the Pashtun and the Taliban, most of the Taliban are Pashtun, probably, ethnically.
0: Yes, although actually I read a thing that said they're trying to recruit outside of their sect more and more. Um, There's this lady, she's really uh, smart. She wrote, um, her name is Ashley Jackson. And I tried and tried and tried to get her on the show, man. I need to try again more. Um, She wrote, uh, this thing for foreign policy, the Taliban's fight for hearts and minds. And she wrote this other thing that was for the Organization for Development something. I forgot, man. Um, but um, it's really great. And it's about essentially the Taliban's counterinsurgency strategy. Oh, it's, it's Life Under the Taliban Shadow Government is what it's called. It came out last June. Life Under the Taliban Shadow Government. And Um, you know, essentially you think about how ridiculous it is that the Americans would implement this counterinsurgency strategy, this Maoist hearts and minds, people's warfare, you know, Hey, it didn't work for the French in Algeria or Vietnam or for us in Vietnam. Let's try it here. It'll be great. Um, kind of strategy, but if you actually are from the people, like the Taliban are, they're not aliens from Mars. They are the men of the region. Um, not all of them, obviously, but they are, that's where they're from. Uh, then it makes sense to fight. It made sense for Mao, didn't it? To fight uh, the people's war. Um, to basically integrate... The people into your war and integrate your war into the way of life of the people as much as you can to make it all very inevitable um, to replace the current security force with your own power in its place. And so, the idea that a bunch of North Americans are going to implement something like that in Pashtunistan is the most ridiculous thing in the world. And you know, you may remember, and it's in the book if you don't remember. They tried their one test case, was in this tiny little farming community of Marja. And the whole thing was a total disaster. And then that was it. They said they were going to do it in Kandahar City, was going to be the showcase. They never even tried it in Kandahar City. This whole thing is ridiculous. Anyway, but the point is, it makes sense for the Taliban. And so, they got smart. Instead of just destroying everything that the Americans and the government built, they just took it all over. So... Uh, in their areas is, are probably the only places where the schools the Americans built didn't fall down because the Talibans the Taliban took them over and maintains the upkeep. and in some places even lets girls go to school. but there's a Taliban appointed teacher. And in some places you have the mayor, the governor, the police chief. They're all part of the government uh, run out of Kabul. And they're collecting a paycheck that's the money that came right out of your paycheck. But they really work for the Taliban. They're appointed by the Taliban. And the Americans are just paying the salaries of their enemies' government. And they've come and they're just taking over all of the bureaucracy, taking over the police functions and taking over. Instead of just having a competing shadow government, they're usurping the government that the Americans have made as well. And rather than just fighting, they're focusing especially on providing the goods and services that win them the confidence of the people. And so, who are you going to trust? Some white kid from Iowa who's pointing a gun at you, who obviously doesn't know the first thing about you or care about you or couldn't possibly know, and neither does his commanding officer, or you're the actual men from the community who are creating this, you know, parallel set of institutions uh, right there. And I'm not saying that the Taliban is ideal. And in fact, you know, the history of this goes back to the Soviets, where the Soviets killed so many of the tribal leaders that the actual um, structure of tribal power was shattered. And so that was when the worst of the warlords that the CIA had supported, people like Haqqani and Hekmachar, came and lorded it over the people in the very worst way. And so then the Taliban came after the Mujahideen. They were they brought under their religious authority. They came and brought law and order and put the uh, you know the criminals in their place and what have you. But so Taliban religious rule is not the norm for afghanistan or even for pashtunistan you know they had this tribal system that islam was a part of it and then ironically as anangopol has written actually these extremely strict hanafi sunni taliban uh religious nuts when they were in charge in afghanistan in the 90s and into uh, 2001 that they were actually far more liberal than the traditional Pashtunwali tribal code. And so um, the degree to which, I guess is the best way to put it, the degree to which women are treated as merely chattel property of their husbands and brothers and fathers and so forth uh, was far worse under the ancient tribal code than Islam which is actually this progressive force that came in and said, for example, on what I think uh, you and I would understand as one of the absolutely uh, most essential questions is whether women can own property, whether they can inherit property, buy and sell property. And under the Taliban, their interpretation, I don't know anything about the Quran, but their interpretation of the Quran says that, of course, women can do that. Whereas the ancient code says no. Oh, by the way, I just thought of this and I have to bring it up. Anne Jones says, and I trust her journalism, that the police under the American government in Afghanistan spend more time chasing runaway women and girls than any other activity. That's their main job is their slave catchers, essentially.
1: Well, and, and I guess to go along with that, isn't the the impetus for the Taliban's kind of rise to power? I, I don't know if this was this probably wasn't the only thing, but wasn't kind of the. I don't know. The tipping point was that they overthrew a warlord who had, you know, like a pet child, like boy slave that he was molesting.
0: Well, yeah, it was, it was boys and women. Yeah, they were being kidnapped and raped in Kandahar City. And, uh, people came to Mullah Omar's group and said, would you please intervene here and do something about this? You're our only hope kind of thing. At least that's the narrative. But you know what, when I was researching the book, I read that in a bunch of different places and they told different versions of the, virtually the exact same story. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of them, I think it was Ahmed Rashid who talked about, that there was a record, I think, of the radio broadcasts. Someone had transcribed the radio broadcasts from right at that time where they were announcing what was going on. And basically what they did was they went to all the criminal groups and said, you're going to either join our police force and obey the law or we're going to put you guys up against the wall and shoot you. This is over. It's the new order under the Taliban, and your time of criminality has come to an end. So, you know, that also meant that a lot of really bad guys became cops under the Taliban. And so it was, it was still pretty rough. You know, Anand Gopal, in his book, he talks about this guy, Mr. Cable. That's what they call him, because that's what he liked to beat people with, who was you know went from a Taliban enforcer to another kind during the war. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's... they really were authoritarians, if not totalitarians. I don't guess they had the the power to really enforce totalitarianism, but they're pretty damn strict, that's for sure. Uh, but, and, it's just and, that, yeah, and, and you know, the their leadership, they're what? corrupt because they're a state, but they didn't tolerate, I don't think they tolerated much of just kind of the petty corruption, corruption on the lower level. I think they, they really made it where you could go out at night and you could, you know what I mean? They They... They brought law and order, sort of like the mob in South Florida, where you can leave your door unlocked because they have a real monopoly on crime around here. And they don't do home invasions at night of of innocent people. Um, But there are no other criminals around here because they don't mess around on this turf, you know. Hmm. Well, that was back in the day. I don't know how it is now.
1: No, but yeah, the point the point stands. Um, It's an interesting, you know, kind of just. It's the standard kind of problem of comparing things to the wrong. You know, people look at how Afghanistan was under that. And of course it was terrible, but that doesn't, you know, the question is compared to what? And if what came before was actually worse than that, then it can make sense why they would enjoy some degree of popular support at that time, just because they're, you know, less worse, as you would say, than the terrible form of brutality that existed prior to that.
0: Even when they took the capital city of Kabul, which was a very metropolitan place with all different Hazaras and ta- and Tajiks and Uzbeks and Turkmen and, and different people there, um, they welcomed the Taliban. And this would be like a redneck militia from North Carolina taking Washington, D.C. And then imagine the people, I mean, the, the white, rich, power monger part of Washington, D.C. in the middle. Imagine them um or or imagine maybe dc in the best comparison but anyway imagine the people of dc welcoming a right wing militia from north carolina because that was how corrupt the trump regime had gotten that that they would take you know at least these right wing redneck hillbilly dudes come in at least they really believe in law and order they really believe yeah. in the law And they're not going to put up with the way how bad things have gotten. Essentially, that was how it was, where they were welcomed, at least at first, as long as they were getting rid of Massoud and the Northern Alliance, who are the guys that, you know, essentially the same team that America's put in power ever since then. I mean, ever since that was in 96 when America was backing the Taliban. But I mean, ever since 2001, when we turned on them.
1: Mm -hmm. So how do you what are your thoughts on the peace talks? I know I know I've. Read that they're ongoing, and I I think they're direct between the U.S. and and the Taliban right now. Do you do you think those have a high chance of success? Do you I mean, you know, do they seem more serious this time around than they have been previously.
0: I don't think that America the Americans have any cards to play, and you know if they did have any, which they didn't, then Obama just played them too soon anyway. Uh, look, we're leaving. I mean, what is Zalmay Khalilzad telling them? Look, man, we're going, but we're just saying what on the way out? And the Taliban are saying, and in fact, they're not even doing that. I mean, this has been going on for months and months. And then I just read this thing. I hope I saved the footnote for this. I think I did. Um, Where someone inside the government wrote this article about how Look, we're only having talks toward the having of talks. We're only having talks to see if we can have talks. And we'd like to include the Afghan government and the Taliban don't want to talk to the Afghan government and they don't want to talk to us. They have not changed. Just as I said in my book a year and a half ago, they have not changed their position and they're not going to change their position that they have nothing to talk about until after we leave. So that's why I say in my book, we should not negotiate with them. We should just go. Because I can't imagine a situation where the Americans say to them, okay, go ahead and destroy everything we've built here. But that's what they're going to do. And the Americans can't stop them from doing that. I mean, if it was my government right now and I was the president, I would be saying to the Taliban, guys, just take Pashtunistan. Declare, you know, not full independence, but... Full scale autonomy and federalism and make a peace deal essentially with the current parliament in Kabul, but stay out of Kabul. Don't continue the war, you know, go ahead and let the government of of the north of the country try to hold itself together as best it can. And we're leaving now. But you guys, this is a great time for you to cease fire. I mean, that would be my advice, but I don't have any reason to think that they would listen to that. I mean, if they're smart, they would remember what a difficult time they had trying to consolidate power of the whole country last time. You know, they took the capital city in 96, or 94, uh, I think 96, but then they still weren't done consolidating power over the whole country when America invaded in 2001. And we're still fighting the Civil War. And then look how much trouble... The government we've created in their place has had taken control over their part of the country this whole time. So why keep fighting a civil war over control over the central government when the central government doesn't have that much power anyway? And you don't even have to break the country apart and have, you know, full secession if that is too much for people, but just have full autonomy and federalism and and you know what have you, this kind of thing. I don't know what cards the Americans had to play. If Donald Trump isn't willing, and I really hope he's not, um, if he's not willing to continue to pick up the tab for this and continue to have Americans out there fighting in Helmand Province and Nangarhar Province for this, then, um, you know, I I think the best thing to do would be to just, you know, give some constructive advice like that and leave and just say, we're not going to bribe you. We're not promising anybody any more money. We're not you know, making any more obligations. We're just going. And, and honestly, not to be a horrible cynic about it, because like I said, I think it'll probably be horrible. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if Bush and Obama built a project there, this so-called federal government there, that cannot stand without American support after 17 years then that already right there is the definition of a failed project, right? Uh, You can just, I guess, if Max Boot would hear, he would say, nuh-uh, if in 30 years it still can't stand on its own, then maybe you got me. But no, I say 17 years, and I'm pretty sure 17 is is enough. And I think that, um, you know, it's pretty, it, it shows that if we leave in in uh, 2030 or whatever year, it would be the same problem. So, you know, but then again, the last time the Taliban took Kabul and tried to consolidate power of the whole country, America, Saudi, and Pakistan supported them. So America could definitely lean on our Pakistani and Saudi allies to lean on the Pakistanis, too. I mean, I don't think the Ameri- the Saudis ever do what the Americans want um, when it's contrary to their interests. But yeah, uh, I get... It I think like people only... are tired of fighting, too, man. I think there are a lot of people in the country who would like to have a ceasefire and a peace deal here, so I don't know. No.
1: Yeah, that's kind of where I, where I was going to go, because I definitely read articles to that effect. I mean, you have—at this point, it's got to be two, three generations of Afghanistan that—of Afghanis who they've never known anything but some version of wartime.
0: Yeah, my whole lifetime.
1: It's It's an amazing—I mean, you just— yeah, obviously, we have no concept of what that's like. It's like, yeah, I mean, America has been at war for most of my life, but that's I don't you know, it's not like that. I experience anything about that in my day to day life. I just read articles on antiwar dot com and get irate about what's happening to other people. But it really doesn't, you know, but to them, it's, you know, a force destabilizing their entire society. So you, you'd think it might almost just because of that be in the Taliban's political interest that. Yeah, we got to have some peace around here for a little
0: while. Yeah. And, and you know what? So, maybe, Omar's maybe it's dead. Not quite I mean, the new guy is apparently a lot more sophisticated than him uh, and more sophisticated than his predecessor, Massoud, who was very incompetent and, dis- and divisive. And so, you know, I don't know. Maybe they could make a deal. Maybe if the Americans got out of the way, maybe the Taliban, there's a possibility that they would be open to compromise. With some of the other factions and willing to live with limitations on their power in other people's parts of the country and this kind of thing. I don't know, man. I mean, I don't want to get caught being optimistic about it because I'm really not. You know, it's not a situation like Syria where when Trump says ISIS is defeated, the Islamic State is no more. And the, the last of the mopping up can be handled by Iran and Hezbollah. He's right. So no problem there. You know, I'm not worried about a land bridge in Syria. I don't give a damn about that, you know. Um, so and neither does anybody else except the the real war hawks. But in Afghanistan, there's a bad come up and succumbing, man. It's like a market crash. It's like a giant bubble and it's going to pop. And yeah. uh, so I don't know. There's no. And I guess the, they always try the to one... inflate more and create a soft landing, but it never does work, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. And I guess the only, you know, it's not really a saving grace, but kind of, you know, the positive thing about the Afghanistan situation from, you know, a purely kind of national interest type of perspective is that even if Afghanistan did collapse into chaos, which, you know, as you're saying, that's smart money's on that outcome. The Taliban never was a, you know, international terrorist threat and their beef with the Americans are that the Americans are there. And so you wouldn't There's really no reason to expect that if the Americans left, that then you'd have a situation where they're suddenly trying to plot transnational terrorist plots against the U S.
0: Yeah. And by the way, you know, the Islamic state, there is also just local Pashtun militia guys. They started out as Tariqi Taliban fighters from Afghan, um, from Pakistan who fled Obama's Pakistan war to safe Haven in Afghanistan. How do you like that? Um, and then declared themselves the Islamic state back in I don't know twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. but and then mostly now, I think their rank and fire are just made up of disaffected factions of the Taliban and that kind of thing. But um, does
1: the Taliban is the Taliban at war with them? Do they have the same kind of? yeah,, they fight all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. that's the other thing is we should get out of their way and let the Taliban go ahead and finish them off. If people want to pretend that anyone who uses the brand name Islamic State, is really a threat, then, could recreate the awakening thing hey Taliban yeah. we'll leave you alone as long as you kill the ISIS for us eh, okay and you know what's funny man is not funny is actually bad it was an American was killed and they reported he was killed in fighting with al-qaeda in Afghanistan and I saw that reported over and over again in three or four different places that it was just taken at face value that someone at the Pentagon or someone in Afghanistan in the military claimed that al-qaeda was present At this fight there. But with no explanation whatsoever. As to who it was he's talking about. And why it was that we should believe that that's true. You know. Or what that even is supposed to mean. I mean it could be he's just some bum. And he meant to say Taliban. But he doesn't know the damn difference after all this time. You know. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. But I don't believe that it was any Egyptian friend of Zawahiri that was firefighting with americans in afghanistan if that was what he meant well I want and if to it see was proof. then that would
1: just tell us that wow 17 years and you couldn't even you didn't even accomplish the one job that you said you were trying to do
0: yeah right exactly <laughs> yeah that's why we got to do it more still look we
1: haven't fixed anything we must stay God,
0: there could be a, a land begging. bridge yeah they're worried the chinese are going to build a land bridge across eurasia You know, this Belt and Road initiative where, which to me, I mean, seriously, man, unless you're some kind of right wing or left wing reactionary paranoiac, you know, freakazoid. But if you're just a regular human, you shouldn't have to be a libertarian. Just any regular human, you know, that they want to build a highway, a railway, a, a, a fiber optic path, whatever, this kind of thing from Shanghai to Lisbon. That doesn't sound like the greatest invention in the history of humanity ever to you? That you would have that? A superhighway across of all of Eurasia? I mean, just think of the possibilities. And, um, you know, anyways, man, I just, uh, I, you know, that to me is what, well, it's one thing about all this is just what a poor sport America is. You know, we win the Cold War and we're a told poor sport about it. We gotta rub their nose in it, do everything we can. All these color-coded revolutions and NATO expansion and all of this stuff. We gotta dominate Eurasia. The Chinese abandon communism and adopt fascism instead. And, you know, at least they can feed their people now. Um, and uh, And they are freer in a lot of ways um and uh certainly compared to how it was under mao and um and we made them our our best trading partner and and basically friend right we don't have any real fights with china or anything we got to manufacture a fight to have with them and then so why should it be a problem i mean do people just assume that the chinese are for the first time and. A 1,000 years or 2,000 years or something, they're going to adopt a giant westward expansionist policy and try to, you know, conquer all Eurasia, use that highway to send the PLA to, to liberate them all. Or, or, I mean, this is all just, and I guess it could be used for that, but, um, you know, in one context or another, but it just seems like, obviously, the purpose is for trade. And, uh it just seems like you know the overall gdp of the world would go up by however many trillions of dollars a year for everyone to share with an advancement like that and the americans are the ones standing there going no we have to no matter how many local illiterate you know tribesmen and their baby daughters we have to bomb To stay in Afghanistan, we have to stay in Afghanistan to prevent that, because that's who we are, you know, USA, the people who did the genocide in Yemen, the people who are willing to continue to kill Pashtuns forever in order to block China from building a land bridge to Portugal, (laughs) you know, it's sick, man, it's stupid, embarrassing and horrible.
1: It is. And it's it's amazing, too, that, you know, kind of the default position, whether it's right or left, because the only reason you would oppose that type of thing, I mean, the only it's not a good reason, but the only coherent reason that you can even have for it is, yeah, well, then China's economy is going to advance because more people are going to want to trade with them because it's going to facilitate that. And they never finish the rest of the sentence. And then and. The answer is, yeah, like you're saying, GDP of everybody would go up, goods are going to be cheaper, everybody's standard of living is going to improve, including in places where it's a lot lower than ours is right now, and yeah. it's Even great that great everyone, commie but-
0: from U2, Bono, came out and goes, you know what, I've been all around the world, and it's capitalism that makes people able to afford food to eat on a regular basis and, you know, a clean place to go to the bathroom and stuff. So, yeah, hate to admit it, guys, because, you know... But here's yeah. the guy, he's like, Mr. Human Rights, charity, uh, you know, celebrity interventionist. Do you ever see the South Park making fun of him? And I, I hate you so much, too, so I have such a bias against that guy. But he's like, you know what? It seems like if we're trying to abolish hunger, <laughs> we need more trade. We need more people in business feeding other people, man. That's how you do it. Yeah.
1: And it's just interesting that the default position of everybody, even though, I mean, you know, we're all bombarded with GDP statistics or, I mean, if you pay attention at all, you're going to hear GDP numbers. And, you know, it's the exception when it's going down. But it's not like, oh, America had 2% GDP growth this year. Therefore, Kenya had negative 2% because we had to take it from somebody. Everybody knows that's not how it works. Everybody. Because that never happened. I mean, you know, it's the exception to the rule that it collapses, but then it's like, but wait, then that means your zero-sum theory—that's underlying all of your stupid ideas—is clearly wrong. Exactly. Because we are all looking at the same thing, and it never happens.
0: Right. Yeah, <laughs> people talk about thing. you know the capitalists hoarding all the wealth. Like, yeah, we all started out with 11 gazillion, gazillion trillion dollars, and then like the white guys and the Jews hoarded it all and kept it all from everyone else, or something like that. When the reality is, no. It used to be that everyone was going hungry, <laughs> and then fewer and fewer people were going hungry as more and more people had property rights and consistently what heard productive you agriculture. Equality. You know?
1: Yeah. All I heard from that was that you hate equality because there was equality when everybody was poor and starving. Yeah. But I knew that about you in the, in the first place, so I'll let it go. Well, sir, should we uh, wrap it up there? What do you think? About two hours, I think.
0: I can't help but think I'm forgetting something, but oh well, who cares? I'm sure people probably had enough by now.
1: Yeah, we're going to we're going to give them a
0: respite. Uploading this.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, well, yeah, we'll we'll have to do another one of these again soon. We did have a couple other topics um, that we'll get to next time, but I don't they're not going to be covered quickly, so so yeah, let's let's save it and uh do we need to do a little outro to make it smooth or not really worry about it?
0: Yeah, I think this is it. <laughs> okay. All right, hey, man. We'll have a good night, dude. Thanks very much, Eric.
1: Yeah, a lot of fun talking to you as always.